0: still remember um, standing there at the altar, uh, looking down the aisle, uh, 1998, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, beautiful stone chapel, stained glass uh, all over the place. And I saw the most beautiful person uh, walking towards me. I think there's a picture. Uh, Brenda's dad. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Brenda. Um, uh, I can still remember the feeling that I had, though, while I was standing there watching her walk towards me. Uh, It was honestly like an overwhelming gratitude. Like I just, I couldn't believe that this was the person I was going to marry. Like I I just, I can still remember feeling like, who am I? Like how did I, God, wind up with such an an amazing, oh, (laughs) sorry, yeah, I had a couple others. Uh kind, intelligent, generous, talented, beautiful woman that I was going to be able to call my wife. I mean, I was just, honestly, just overwhelmed with gratitude. I can still, I still feel it. Like right now, I can feel what I was feeling in that moment. Uh, I've had other moments um, like that in my life for different things. Uh, I remember when I started to sense that God was maybe calling me uh, to be a pastor. And uh, I remember the first uh, church that uh, I had the opportunity to work at um, it was a church called The Chapel, which was up in uh, Akron, Ohio. Uh, I was at a school down south. That's why I said up. I don't know why I said up to Akron. But. Uh, it was a church that um, I knew of, uh, knew the senior pastor of, like really, really uh, great church. A uh, very large church. I didn't grow up in a large church. I grew up in a kind of a small, uh, small to small medium-sized church, and so like I never thought like a church like that would ever hire someone like me. And I remember getting the call from the the family ministries pastor who offered me uh, a, one of their resident uh, positions. Uh, I, I was overwhelmed. I couldn't believe it. I was like, God, you're letting me do this. Uh, they were going to cover my seminary. Uh, they were going to pay for my seminary, and uh, they were going to give me $55 a week and an abandoned house to live in with uh, two other guys. Greatest thing ever. 55 bucks a week and an abandoned house to live in. Uh, I remember, honestly, like being just so overwhelmed. Uh, five years later, um, God called us to uh, Grand Rapids to work at Calvary Church. I remember being overwhelmed that God was going to allow me. Like the chapel, that was a resident position. I knew it was like only a two-year gig. Gone on to finish seminary in Chicago. Worked at a church there. Loved my time there. God was calling us out. I never thought a church like Calvary Church would ever hire a guy like me. Just didn't think it was like possible. And then when I got the call from Dan Kriegel become my boss for the next seven years, I was overwhelmed that I was going to have an opportunity to work at such a great church. A 33% pay cut didn't faze me a bit. I felt like I won the lottery that Calvary Church was going to allow me to be their junior high pastor. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? Or maybe a number of moments, sometimes it's big things, sometimes it's little things, but a moment where you were just overwhelmed with gratitude for something, something you didn't feel qualified or worthy of. Go ahead and turn to the person next to you, and let's see if we can share a thought or two about that. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn open to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, we're continuing on in our series right now in... Uh, victories and valleys, trying to work through the life of David. Uh, really, though, it's <laughs> important that we remember that the main character of David's life is not actually David, okay? As we walk through First and Second Samuel, uh, the main character is not Samuel, not King Saul, not, not even King David. It's always God. God's always the main character in the books of the Bible, but some of the secondary characters, like David, help us understand what God's like, who God is, what God cares about, what he desires for us. And uh, we're going to kind of experience that again as we engage in this particular story. Now, this one's really, really important, actually, within the scope and sequence of First and Second Samuel. There's some really cool things that are actually taking place here because most of 1 and 2 Samuel is actually talked to or shared uh, with us from the point of a, uh, the viewpoint of a narrator, okay? So you've got the author, the narrator of the story is usually telling us what's happening. Uh, There's always, uh, here and there, there's little bits of dialogue where people are actually talking. This is the first time that we're going to have extended periods of dialogue that are happening from God and then from David. That's how we know that this is a really, really important kind of turning point in the story. Uh, In fact, uh, theologians say that this is uh, what's about to happen right now is called the Davidic covenant, okay? Uh, a covenant that God makes with David. Now, the Davidic covenant, David's covenant, does not supersede some of the earlier covenants. You had the Abrahamic covenant, which is God is going to use Abraham to make a great nation for himself, Uh, the uh, the Israelite nation. Uh, And you've got the Mosaic covenant, which is all the laws, which God's like, hey, uh, if you do these things, I'm going to bless you and be with you. And if you disobey them, then I'm going to withhold and remove my blessing. All right. So the Davidic covenant, which we're going to learn about in just a second, uh, is underneath those. Now let's Pick up the story and see what's happening here, okay? Chapter 7, verse 1 says, After the king was settled in his palace, all right, the king of Tyre, when David takes Jerusalem, sends a bunch of uh, craftsmen, uh, a, a bunch of expensive wood and materials, stonemasons, to build David a palace, all right? David's got a dope house. He lives in a house of cedar, okay? All right, it is a nice place. David's chilling there. He says, and the Lord, Yahweh, had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, and now God's about to give a vision to Nathan for David. God says, go and tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own. And no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. As they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over all my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul." Whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne, David, will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Now, David realizes he's living in a nice house and God's still living in a tent. Okay, the ark of the covenant where God has chosen during this time in history. To place his physical presence on earth is a tent. Now, the tent is also known as the tabernacle, okay? They made it uh, about a year or so after uh, they left Egypt. So they wander for 40 years, then you've got the period of the judges, and God continues to live in a tent this entire time. It's been about over, a little over 450 years at this point that God's presence there in the Ark of the Covenant has been in a tent. David's like, I can't live in a house and have God living in a tent. I want God's name to be greater than my name. I want God to have something that's even better, nicer than than what I have. And so David has a great idea. He's like, I want to build him a house, build him a temple. Nathan starts off by saying, yo, man, whatever you have in mind, you should do it, because like the Lord is with you, Okay. He wasn't saying that that was God's decision. He's just like letting him know, like, look, man, everybody realizes God's with you, dude. Like everything you do, like God is like, his hand is blessing it. So like, if you got an idea, man, you should go for it. Except then that night, God comes to Nathan. He's like, yeah, 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 no, Uh, go tell David he is not to build a house for me. Now we're going to learn in other places, uh, 1 and 2 Kings, a part of the reason is because David was a man of war. David had blood on his hands, and so God says, you're going to actually uh, not build me a temple. Uh, Your son is going to build me a temple. And so Solomon, David's son, will build the temple of the Lord a a little bit later, Uh, but David doesn't get to. God says to David, you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house a house that is an enduring house. That, that's what he wants David to understand. David is so interested in seeing God be lifted up, right? That it can't just be about him and his kingdom. He wants everybody to know that it is God's greatness, God's goodness, that God is the one who has done this and God therefore should receive all the glory. He, he shouldn't be living in a nice house if God doesn't have an even nicer house. David's got a great heart for what he wants to do, but God doesn't allow him to do it. Now, we see now what David then says in response to this vision, this word that comes from God through the prophet Nathan to David. Let's keep reading, verse 18. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. So he goes into the tabernacle and sits before the Lord and says, who am I, Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? Who am I? Who am I, Sovereign Lord? What is my f- Like, yo, know, I'm, I'm nobody from nowhere. How can you say this to me? David is overwhelmed with gratitude. Uh, it's interesting that he does not speak from disappointment in this moment. Because I'm sure David had been thinking about this for a little while, right? Like, he's living in his house. He's like, "Yo, yo, I, I need to do something here. He's been thinking. He's got a good idea. His heart's in the right place. He wants God to be exalted, not, not, not just him. It would have been very easy for David to have been disappointed, to be like, well, why can't I, Lord? Like, but David doesn't do that. Not only that, David doesn't actually speak from a place of frustration either, which is kind of the sense that we get that if Saul were in the same position, he would have. Uh, you see, it's very possible that someone might have wanted to build God a very large and beautiful temple, not so much really for God's glory, but to show everybody how awesome they were, Right? Let me me show you what I can build for you, God, so that everybody would be like, wow, look at the things that he can do. Look at the things that she can do. But David doesn't do that either. David doesn't speak out of disappointment. He doesn't speak out of frustration. Instead, he accepts what God has said. All right, I'm not going to build it. And he's overwhelmed with gratitude for what God has instead said to David. Let's continue reading down in verse 27 and verse 29. Because David does something here that when I first read it, I honestly got a little bit uncomfortable. Because so far, I'm like so grooving with David. I'm like, dang, man, dude, you're awesome. Like, God has given you this amazing, unbelievable, unmerited gift in His choosing and what He has said about you and your family, what He's done, and not only what He's done, but what He's going to do. He's made promises about you and your offspring. And David is just like, wow, goes straight into a place of just unbelievable gratitude, overwhelmed with gratitude, and I'm like, yes, that's the response, man. Like, when you know what God's done, like, that's the response. Verse 27, Lord, almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Hmm? Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. David doesn't stop at only being overwhelmed by gratitude. He doesn't just yield to what God has said he actually has the audacity to ask God to actually do what he said. Like, all right, Lord, like, that's amazing. I'm like, who am I and who is my house? Like, I'm nobody. But then he goes on to say, okay, well, you promised it, so you should make it happen. Like, you should really do it now. Uh, Listen to this quote from uh, B.T. Arnold. He says, he says, he humbly this is David, David, humbly expresses a sense of overwhelming unworthiness, but he also prays that Yahweh will fulfill (laughs) his promises. His prayer of grateful deference and bold demand manages both to yield and to insist at the same time. It is this marvelous blend of yielding and insistence that marks David's faith and Israel's prayer at its best. Ah, man, I love that concept. David has the correct response to this unmerited favor by God. He's overwhelmed with gratitude, but he also wants the world to know that God is great. How is the world going to know if God is great? Well, by God doing the things that God says he's going to do. David's not afraid to ask God to be good on his promises. I sit back and I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell God. I can't tell God like, hey, you really need to do what you said you're going to do. Right? I'm just like, but David actually shows us what prayer at its finest looks like. David doesn't just simply believe that God is who he says he is. He wants the rest of the world to see God as who he truly is. So he's willing to say, God, I am, I am nobody. I don't deserve this. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. But God, what you have promised to do, you need to do it. Because the world needs to know that you are who you say you are, that you do what you say you're going to do. Um, I was thinking about this this past week as I was preparing this message. I've actually been looking forward to this, this particular, verse 18 for me, it was like, um, I don't think I'm going to get emotional today. Uh, but over the last probably month or so, uh, I've spent time, and this verse alone has, has had me in tears. Because I know who I am. I know where I came from. I was not the kid you would have bet on in middle school, or high school for that matter. Uh, I come from a little town that is known for uh, its failings and its brokenness. Um, I I was one of... uh, Nine kids, there's nothing special about me. The fact that God would invite me, call me, allow me to be a pastor to this day still, I do feel, well, maybe I will get a little emotional. <laughs> I still feel the, the, the just overwhelming gratitude that I have for it. I know who I am. But as I was thinking about it, I I was thinking about someone who's sitting out there and feeling like, man, but I don't know what I have to look at. Like, if God came and said, hey, I'm gonna make you like king, ruler, and your family line's gonna go on forever, like then maybe I would, but like I've never heard that thing. And And it got me thinking. And as I was thinking about it, God was like, help them see that what I said to David, anybody that's living now after Christ that has become a follower of Jesus has everything that David has and more. Help them see see that they have it even better than what David had. They know more than what David knew. They they got to see and hear what Jesus was like. Uh, The crazy thing about this kind of promise that God gives to David is uh, it lived Kind of. My my daughter, we were talking about this last week. My daughter was like, uh, so he's supposed to still have somebody on the throne? Because I don't think there's like a great, 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 great grandson of David that's on the throne right now. And I was like, yeah, you're right. There isn't, (laughs) right? There's no king in Israel. And I said, it's because this promise that God gives is actually fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is of the line of David. And becomes the ruler of Israel, uh, not by ruling on a throne the way that everybody anticipated and thought. The Messiah actually rules by dying on a cross and being resurrected to be the firstborn in the resurrection parade that now you and I all get to participate in. He is the king from that royal line of David that rules forever. Uh, you see, uh, like I said, the covenant that God made with David, it still sits underneath the Mosaic covenant, which God said, if you do these things, if you obey what I say, then I will be with you. And if you choose not to obey the things that I say, then I will not be with you. And I will withhold my blessing and I will have to discipline you, right? Because if you really love somebody, you discipline them. Uh, not, not out of anger, okay? Not punitively. God, his discipline is always out of love and a desire to redeem, to buy back. To restore, his discipline is always restorative, not punitive. And so, uh, David's sons, and we're going to find out really soon, God made this promise to David, even knowing what David is going to do in the future. What David's sons are going to be like, and grandsons, and great-grandsons. And God gives him this, but also there are some stipulations with it. That's why when Jesus comes and does everything perfectly that nobody else is able to do, he reigns forever on David's throne. And because of that, you and I actually have some promises from God that are even more powerful than the promise that David gets. Uh, I'm going to hit 10, and I'm going to hit him quick, okay? He promises us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. If you come to Jesus, you can be forgiven. I don't care what you're sitting in right now in this moment that you're not even sure you could ever tell anybody about because you should be way past it or it's so deep and dark and dirty that you don't want anybody to know it. Shame is driving you away. If you come to Jesus, he will forgive you. Not only that, but you will find life everlasting. It is his promise. He promises to give us wisdom if we ask. If you don't know where you're supposed to go to school, if you're supposed to take that job or that job or not take either of them, if you're supposed to marry that person or not be married right now, you come to God and ask for wisdom. He promises to give it to us. He promises to provide a way out of temptation. No matter what kind of brokenness, no matter what kind of past, no matter what kind of difficulty you've had, no matter how hard it is to be disciplined in your life, that's a promise that he makes if we're willing to take the way out that he provides. He promises that our salvation is secure no matter what. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. Just like he promised he would not remove his love from David. Yes, he would discipline him. When David messed up, when his offspring messed up, he would discipline, but he did not remove his love. Jesus does not either from us. Our salvation is secure. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Highs, lows, doesn't matter. He won't let go. Promises to finish the good work he began in us. He promises us rest. He promises us abundant life to those who follow him. He promises his disciples power from on high. Did you know that? Power on high. The first disciples turned upside down the world. That same power is available to you and to me. It's a promise. He promises that He will return for us. We should be overwhelmed by God's promises when we understand them in our life. They should put us to a place where we're like, God, I don't even, who am I? Who am I, Father? Um, As part of my sabbatical grant that we were uh, awarded um, by an organization, I get to take three trips as part of my sabbatical. Family renewal trip, spiritual renewal trip, and marriage renewal trip. Um, My sabbatical will start in a couple of, uh, about a month and a half, two months. Um, I'll get to do two of those trips during that time, but our family renewal trip uh, needed to happen uh, uh, as part of kind of our kids' Christmas break from school. And uh, we got to go to uh, the Philippines. It was uh, a vacation. uh, a trip that we would never have been able to afford outside of the generosity of this organization and the grant. And when they uh, gave that uh, to us, uh, we were able to go. And my wife, who's Filipino, uh, but was born and raised in Philadelphia, uh, never been to the Philippines. I've never been, none of my kids. We got to experience the beauty of that place. Uh, the Philippines is absolutely gorgeous, tropical. All the things you think of with tropical paradise, man, they're there. But what's better than even the, the beauty of the islands is the beauty of the people. Um, they are the most hospitable culture I've ever experienced, and I've had the privilege of visiting a number of different cultures. Kindness, a servant's heart, a desire for you to, to, to be welcomed and, and cared for. Like It helped me understand more of what her mom was like, why her mom was like that, her brothers, what they're like. So much of that got passed on and I I absolutely loved experiencing that. But it also allowed us or or kind of forced us to come into the very real contact that uh, the Philippines is a very economically uh, um, depressed area. Um, It it made my kids see and experience things that they don't usually see and experience uh, here in the States. Uh, I think the average day wage is ten dollars in the Philippines. In the U.S., it's two hundred twenty. That gives you any idea the difference? Um, it made my kids have to ask the question that I've had to ask at times. Uh, it's that game that you play: who am I and what is my family? Why us? Like why? Because quite honestly, if it wasn't for the fact that God took my my in-laws out of the Philippines. That could have been the place that my kids grew up. Gratitude. Same thing that I felt last week when I had a front row seat to see 29 people come forward and declare their love for Jesus by being baptized, by being obedient to the waters of baptism. It was amazing. Overwhelmed with gratitude. Uh, My prayer for this week, friends, was not that you would... uh, be challenged with your head or be challenged with what to do with your hands. Um, there are there are weeks that that's what the sermon's for, it's to help you know something better, make you do something. Today, what I want us to catch, which is what David was feeling, is I want, it's about your heart. It's about your heart. And uh, in just a second, the worship team is gonna come out. Um, while they're coming out though, uh, I want you to listen to a song. I don't, this is only the second time I've ever done this. Um, but I want you to listen to a song and I want you to just sit with Jesus and allow him, ask him to to capture your heart, to be overwhelmed with gratitude. We're gonna take communion a little bit later as a way to engage with that as we sing some songs as well. So do that.